House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back. And now joining us for the interview, we have um, the author of American Sherlock. It's Murder Forensics and the birth of the American CSI, we got Kate Winkler Dawson. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Kate, how did you get into this subject This and, and enough to write the book? Well, um, it was interesting. So my first book was called Death in the Air, and it was, an about, uh, it was about an event. So it was the 1952 smog in London that killed 12,000 people, and within that event, you find out more about the smog through these real-life characters. So there's a little girl, there's a cop, there's a doctor, and a serial killer, because I write true crime. So for the second book, I knew I wanted to do sort of the reverse. I wanted a bunch of different events told through the eyes of one person. And I knew I wanted to do forensics, and I was kind of on the hunt for a good forensic scientist who had made history and, you know, was an interesting character. And so I just bought a book. I bought a book on um, essentially the Encyclopedia of Criminals, uh, which is very thick, not surprising, <laughs> in America. <laughs> and I started reading. It was, um, I started with the Pilgrims, and I made it into the uh, Poisoners of the 1800s and the Mobsters of the 1920s. And at 1923, there was this great story about botched train robbery that happened in Oregon and the cops were befuddled, four people dead, you know, three robbers on the run, nobody could give an identification and the federal agents that came in were given a pair of overalls were really the only real big clue and the only thing they could find on the overalls was a bit of mechanics grease. And, you know, they were just clueless, and uh, so the sheriff was nervous, and he called Oscar Heinrich, who's the subject of the book. And he was a forensic scientist who worked in Berkeley, California, from about 1910 until he died in 1953. And they handed him the overalls, and when he returned the results, he had found somewhere between 20 and 30 different clues from trace evidence just on that pair of overalls, one clue that pointed directly to one of the robbers so they could actually trace this person, and the rest were, I mean, a profile. He could say how much the person weighed, how tall he was, the color of hair, his habits. And so, of course, when I read that and I saw his moniker, which was America's Sherlock Holmes, that I just kind of figured that's book number two for me. <laughs> now, what did you find about uh, Oscar Heinrich did you were you surprised that he was able to do so much way back then yeah I think one of the things that was interesting about him that we don't have now is I would call him a generalist so he was someone who knew 20 to 30 different disciplines within forensics and they didn't even call it forensics then so he understood botany geology entomology you know bugs um, he understood ballistics, bloodstain pattern analysis. And some of these things he was professionally trained in, and some of these things he, he just picked up either from other experts or from reading. 
And so he was able to walk in to a crime scene and look, kind of scan the room, and, and think about the 10 to 15 different tests that he could run on this one crime scene. And that's really different than now. I mean, now everybody's siloed, generally. You know, at a crime lab, you have a DNA expert. You have a fingerprint expert. You know, you have a um, bloodstain pattern analysis expert. And it should be like that. You know, you should have people who are specifically trained in their own expertise. But Oscar was so unique because he would go to a crime scene, which forensic scientists don't do now. He would collect his own evidence, and then he would return to a lab. So, you know, this is the beginning of forensics, really, in the United States. I mean, it's just emerging. There are now he was, he was the first professional witness to take the stand ever, which means he was professionally trained. He was a chemist. He was a sanitary engineer. You know, he was a chemical engineer. So he was really more qualified than just about anyone else to testify in most of these cases. How was it back then? But you know, in, in uh, during the uh, train heist, for instance, um, and he comes up with these. Um, pieces of evidence, um, was it taken seriously or what, what did people just kind of, you know, think of it as um, kind of hokey? Well, at the beginning, um, you know, the, the, he got the most kickback, certainly from police officers who thought he was bigfooting their investigations. You know, often he would come in at the very beginning of his career, he would often come into an investigation um, you know, several weeks into it, once the cops had been stumped, then they would spend the money or the prosecutor would spend the money and he would come in. So, you know, you have cops who haven't been able to solve a case and now they're seeing someone come in who, you know, is supposedly an expert and smarter than they are. And, you know, Heinrich was not, he didn't like cops that much. There were certain cops who he did like. Um, but he really liked the, the educated police officers. Um, he felt like the police officers in this time period, really in the 1920s, um, leaned too heavily on intimidation, you know, on the third degree, spraying suspects with water hoses. They leaned on hunches, and he just didn't believe in all that. Even though he did work off of his own hunches, um, you know, he really was working in the time period that was the wild west of forensics. You know, anyone could be an expert. The, the cops were doing guesswork, and they were using unreliable uh, types of forensics to try to solve the cases. So now, in this book, I think you've got like um, 10 different cases or something like that here. Um, how did you choose um, which ones you were going to write about? Well, it's interesting. So the story behind that is when I first found out that, when I first kind of sorted out that Oscar should be my second book, um, I looked to see if he had an archive, if he had a collection somewhere. And he did at UC Berkeley, which was fantastic. It was huge, more than 100 boxes. Again, fantastic for an author. But it was closed because it was so big. And so, you know, I had to figure out, I had to petition UC Berkeley and figure out how to frame it so that I could convince the archivist that he was worth spending time on archiving. 
And so I finally convinced her. And um, when we started digging into the cases, she said, listen, you know, it's going to be about a year and a half before you're going to be able to get into his case files. And you can have 2,000 of his letters. You can start reading up on his correspondence. But you can't have any of his cases because I have to catalog them all. And so I said, okay. And I said, um, what are his 15 biggest, thickest files? And so she looked. She spent like a week looking. And she came back with a list and just said, here are his 15 biggest cases, which sounds sort of silly and arbitrary. But, you know, when you're an author, you want as much material as possible. I want trial transcripts. I want his journals. I want his notes. I want evidence that he kept. And all of that was there. And so the thicker the file, I figured, the more important the case. And so she gave me this list, and I sort of narrowed it down based on the type of forensics that he used. So I tried not to repeat. So if you look at each um, chapter, at the top there's a Sherlock Holmes quote because of his nickname, America Sherlock Holmes. So there's a Sherlock Holmes quote that's connected to the type of forensics that's actually used in that chapter. So I have a chapter that really the primary forensics he used was geology. Another one was entomology with bugs. You know, another one was bloodstain pattern analysis. The Fatty Arbuckle case, which was a, a silent film star who won a trial for manslaughter, that was a fingerprinting case. And so I sort of just narrowed it down from there and while she cataloged those cases um, in Berkeley, I was in Austin doing my own independent research away from Oscar's collection. So, you know, the Fatty Arbuckle case, for instance, the silent film star, it's pretty well documented. A couple of books have been written about it. The trial transcripts are available. I was able to do my own research and actually start building the book without having access to his files, I didn't have access to, you know, uh, his case files, his notes, his journals, until probably nine months before the book was due. So I had to fill in a lot of blanks. So where did uh, Berkeley get this collection from? This massive collection. Who was keeping it for all those years? Well, so he died in '53, and he had a wife and two sons. And Oscar had an office in San Francisco that uh, he had to close. We can get into his financial issues later. He had a lot of financial issues. So he had to close this office. Everything was in his Berkeley lab by the time he died. And it was at the bottom of his house in the basement. And it was a huge lab, and he kept everything. He was like, I joke, he was like a productive hoarder. He kept everything that really mattered, but it was such a tremendous amount of stuff because he was such a meticulous investigator that it was overwhelming. So he died, and then I think the house stayed within the family, and they just never, I think they probably just locked the door and never touched the stuff. But in 1965, um, his youngest son, I, I, I kind of joke, I don't know if this is true or not, but I rented whatever U-Haul was available, if there was a U-Haul back then, and dumped it on the steps of UC Berkeley because huh. he, they just put everything in boxes and it had never been opened. They just, I think Berkeley just saw it was huge and un unwieldy, and they were understaffed like a lot of archives are. And so they just put it in their storage, which where is it, it has been for, you know, uh, 60 years, essentially. And, um, you know, the reason I know nothing's been, that none of the boxes were really opened was 
when Lara Michaels, who is the archivist at Berkeley, started opening the boxes, they found two or three loaded pistols from one of his cases. Oh, wow. And they had, <laughs> like, loaded, like they had bullets. <laughs> so they had to call UC Berkeley police to have the firing pins removed. So that's a dream collection for me, obviously. And when I sat next to the archivist, when she finally invited me um, to come to Berkeley, I went to the warehouse. I didn't go to the library. So if any of your listeners have done research, you go to a library, you, you know, get patted down almost. You know, they want to make sure you're not bringing any weapons, you're not taking anything out. You have to register. You give them a little slip. They give you one box at a time. It's very orderly. And the archivist said, you're not going to be able to get this book done if you don't just come to the warehouse. And so I went to the warehouse, and there were all of his boxes just laying there. And she said, just go pick out whichever one you want. She was literally assigning numbers and folder numbers to the boxes while I was looking through them. And so it was such a surreal experience because, you know, like I picked up a locket of hair, and I said, Laura, what hair is this? Where's this from? And she said, oh, that's from uh, the Fatty Arbuckle case. So Fatty Arbuckle, the silent film star, was on trial for killing a woman, an actress named Virginia Rapay. And then he, she said, that's Virginia Rapay's hair. So he shouldn't have had any of this stuff, none of the guns. He had bomb parts. I mean, he had like, I had a, um, a jaw bone. There was a skull, a cracked skull. There was like, um, he took a bullet out of a dead person's heart and filled the, the hole in the heart with wax. For some reason, I don't, I don't <laughs> but it was labeled like that. And so I picked this up, and here's this like little wax this little wax figure it was it was such an odd interesting it was great it was wonderful for me well i guess i guess back in that time he wasn't under any sort of regulation was he no no nothing and on, and you know honestly people ask me about his legacy and i think he had a lot of different legacies he was a professor at uc berkeley for 30 to 40 years he started the first criminology courses there so you know i'm a professor at the university of texas so, of course, I think that's his legacy. He taught thousands of people in his lifetime how to use forensics correctly. But really what he did that was so amazing was he came up with a very organized, meticulous way to collect evidence and then catalog it at a crime scene. And no one had really done that before. So because he was, I am quite sure, obsessive-compulsive, he came up with his own system. So he had certain labels. He had ordered a, a particular type of containers. You know, he measured everything. I looked through his notes at the Fatty Arbuckle case, which happened in two or three different suites at the St. Francis Hotel. It was a huge party. And he, no joke, had like six to ten pages of measurements of like, probably completely innocuous evidence, hair, feather that he found. I mean, just like what I, what I looked at and just went, God, how long did he do this? He was on his hands and knees measuring, and then he would put like longitude and latitude and latitude in different positions in the, in the um, room. So it was like, it was madness. I mean, I, but he cataloged this stuff so he could find it immediately later when he went to trial. And so it was brilliant, and it's a technique that really set a blueprint for all of the contemporaries 
you know, who he worked with, and it really affected forensics and how meticulous and, um, you know, how detailed investigators are now. Did he actually do his work for a particular, like for the prosecution? Or, you know, if they had someone they suspected, was he kind of hired to, to figure out if that person did it, or did he just sort of check just for the truth? Like, what, what was his... His, his his initiative? Well, much of the time he was hired by the prosecutor because when he would be hired, like I said, he would be coming into a case sometimes one or two weeks behind because they were stumped. And so he might be hired by the police officers to just figure out who a suspect is, not to have him prosecuted. Um, a lot of times he was hired by prosecutors to eliminate suspects. He would occasionally be hired by defense attorneys, but the, the sort of the big, big case in my book is the case of uh, David Lampson, who was an executive at Stanford University Press in Palo Alto. His wife ended up dead in the bathroom. He was arrested. The prosecutor um, accused him of beating her to death with an iron pipe, and Heinrich was hired by the prosecutor. To, to prove this using bloodstain pattern analysis. So he walked into the bathroom. He did his little measurements with his, you know, cardboard dial using trigonometry. And he walked out and, and immediately resigned from the case and called the defense attorney because he said, I, this guy didn't do it. That's not what happened here. So, you know, I think those switcheroos were rare, but he would never compromise his integrity on the stand. What he did do, which was problematic, was he would let his own biases, number one, his own biases seep in, like in the case of Fatty Arbuckle. He really disliked Hollywood. He disliked actors. He thought they were uh, unseemly, and he really thought like they were dragging everybody, you know, um, into hell, essentially. And so, you know, you can really see in that chapter his bias against Fatty Arbuckle, the actor, and, you know, Oscar was relying on forensics that has since been debunked. And they didn't know it back then. I mean, they just thought this is a new technique. Fingerprinting, that yes, I can see this fingerprint looks just like this fingerprint. Ergo, this is our suspect is actually the killer. But that's not the case now, and we know that. So, you know, he, he had some hubris there that was problematic, that still experts today have where they aren't able to admit that, you know, their methods need to be tested more thoroughly. Right, right. It's almost gone too far. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that what happens with juries is they see a couple of things. Either they see an expert in a white white coat or in Heinrich, he loved tweed suits. He would wear a tweed suit. He always looked like a professor. And they would believe him or... Heinrich really, really had a problem um, figuring out the right vernacular to use with an audience, like a, a, a group of jurors who maybe didn't even have a high school education, let alone a college education. So he struggled with um, scientific vernacular and confusing a jury, and that happens now too. You know, you have one expert on one side contradicting seemingly the same expert on the other side 
who's the jury going to believe? I mean, who, who, you know, the one who looks better, or who sounds better? It's confusing. And so it's still a very complicated process for jurors and judges now. Mm. So, now, of, of these cases, is there one that really um, kind of sticks with you even today? Um, yeah, I think... I think that the, the David Lamson case is really interesting because, I'm sorry, I tend to spoil <laughs> all my <laughs> stories. I'm going to try not to spoil this too much. But the, the David Lamson case is really um, confusing for me because, you know, um, here is this seemingly happy couple. He is uh, has really no criminal. He has a criminal record, sort of, but not really. He accidentally killed a boy when he was younger in a hunting accident, but he's got a spotless record. And so when she ends up dead in the bathroom and there's blood on every wall, it's really difficult to believe that, that someone like David Lamson, who is this upstanding citizen and, and, you know, seemingly a really good husband would do it. And, of course, I'm not naive enough to, to say and husbands don't do that. Of course they do. And seemingly perfect husbands do that also. But <clears throat> I think that that case was interesting because Heinrich believed she either slipped and fell and hit her head. The prosecutor believed David Lamson got really mad and beat her to death. And there was this third option that I was talking to a neurologist um, that he and I both came up with that was interesting. And the third option could have been um, because the reason that um, Heinrich and, and ultimately some jurors believed that um, Aileen Lamson died by slipping and falling was the pattern on the back of her head was evenly, perfectly evenly spaced as if a bathroom sink, as if her head hit a bathroom sink and the ridges were perfectly spaced and they measured up to the bathroom sink. Right? So nobody's going to hit someone even with a, with a pipe evenly spaced as she's falling down. It just didn't make, the wound powder didn't make sense. And his motive didn't make sense. But what, I think what haunts me about that case is, case is what the neurologist and I came up with, which is, okay, well, what if he, David Lamson, threw her into the sink? What if he grabbed her and threw her in? That would account for, you know, the markings on her head, and, you know, also, you know, it would account for, you know, uh, Heinrich had these measurements that showed where she was falling at the time. So you'll, we just won't ever know. I mean, David Lamson, that case was so confusing, and it went all the way to the California State Supreme Court. And, you know, what you essentially had was juries and even Supreme Court justices pretending to fall and hit their heads to figure out whether or not this woman could have died that way. So, you know, it was one of the more interesting cases that I think he had. Now, I guess uh, true crime took a big, um, was really popular in the 20s, sort of like how it is now. Uh, why do you yeah. think that was? Well, I think it's probably the same, same thing. I, I liken true crime for me to the people who are fanatics about sci-fi, you know, if you think about it, compelling characters usually, right, uh, where people are not used to being in, and hopefully, you know, I will never be involved in a true crime story, 
hopefully, you know, um, uh, I'll never know somebody who's capable of doing that. It's just a world that you're dropped into that we're not used to, and um, it feels far removed. So somebody asked me the other day, it was an interesting question, about families. Like, have I ever, you know, do I counter families who don't appreciate true crime stories? And uh, because, you know, maybe they were involved in one, like, you know, a loved one was, was murdered. And I had to really think about that because I think that's the reason why I like old true crime. I don't like involving current families who I can talk to and get reaction from. I did that as a TV news producer for years, and I just did not like knocking on someone's door and dredging up the past. And so the stories that I do, you know, the first book was from 1952. This one is primarily in the 1920s. Um, you know, a book that I'm probably going to do now is late 1800s. I think I'm going older and older. <laughs> I keep going backwards because I think I need some arms length. I need space, you know, because it's with the first book I did, Death in the Air, you know, there's a little girl in it who loses her father because he has to walk through the smog. She's 78 years old now, and I interviewed her extensively, and it was still painful for her, and it's been 60 years. And so I think that must play into it a little bit. And I think that that now is a reason why, you know, people, and particularly women, are incredibly drawn to true crime, like incredibly drawn. It's, it is by far the largest audience is women for true crime. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think, you know, women like tips. To, to I don't know if it's to stay away from serial killers, but we like to arm, armchair quarterback a little bit. We like to kind of see where other people went wrong, not in a morbid way, but just in a cautionary way, I guess. So I think there's a whole host of reasons. There also could be, for all Americans, a little bit of um, a better them than me kind of thing, as bad as that sounds. you know. So I think there are a lot of reasons why people like true crime. Mm. It's a good story. I mean, you know, it's just a good, you've got the narrative arc. You've got good people, bad people. Someone changes after it. No matter what, someone is altered by the end of the story. And that is the best kind of story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, so what can you tell us about his um, personal life and how he lived um, outside of his work? Well, so, you know, he was married and he had two children and Oscar was really interesting, thank goodness, because, um, you know, I've looked into doing books about not-so-interesting people, and it's just so boring. You know, you really want somebody with a lot of detail, and, you know, Oscar was really angst-ridden, which, you know, as a friend would be difficult for me, um, you know, to deal with if I were his friend, but as a, an author who's doing his biography, it was really interesting. Um, so he lost his father at a very young age, very tragically, um, and from that time he had an incredible paranoia, much of it warranted over finances. And his father's death left him and his two sisters and his mother almost destitute. He was forced out of, to uh, drop out of high school. And what's interesting is I think he might not have become a forensic scientist had his father not died because he dropped out of high school and he started working in a pharmacy as kind of a cleanup boy. 
And the other pharmacists encouraged him when he was 18 to go ahead and read books and study and take the state exams in Tacoma, Washington to become a pharmacist. And so he couldn't afford a proper education, you know, no pharmacy classes, but he read and he did it. He passed and he got a great job as a pharmacist and that was the beginning. He learned toxicology. He learned about drugs, about medicinal whiskey. He learned about... um, handwriting analysis because he had to constantly interpret the horrible handwriting of doctors and he learned about human nature right i mean you know he had people coming there to the pharmacy begging for drugs that they weren't prescribed to use and so this gave him an immediate education essentially in forensics and so i think that that set him off on a really great career path however you know this constant fear of bankruptcy, which almost happened to him three times. The bank almost foreclosed on his house um, because he was not a money manager, not a good money manager. His reaction was so interesting, which was, you know, I called him a hoarder of productive information. So, you know, he hoarded everything with his cases, all of his evidence. But he also hoarded financial information. And that was what was so interesting. So I found just stacks of 40 years worth of daily logs of everything he spent every day, five cents for bread, 20 cents for gas, or whatever. And he logged it. Can you imagine the amount of effort that must take for somebody who's juggling 20 to 30 cases a month? And he journaled everything. So in his private journals, he wrote down what time he talked to people. The case that he talked about always went in the margin, thank goodness. He talked about, um, you know, when he would wake up, when he would smoke a pipe, when he took lunch, when he went to bed. He journaled when he was journaling. He wrote 8 to 9 p.m. journalizing. You know, so he really was, he was OCPD for sure. And I, I think that was so interesting. And a friend of mine said, do you think that he became like this, this kind of OCPD guy, um, in order, because he knew to be a forensic scientist, he was going to have to, you know, pull together all this information and be able to recall things, kind of like have a Sherlock mind palace. And I said, no, I think it's the other way around. I think he became a forensic scientist because of this personality disorder. I think he needed to be able to control things, to catalog things, to put things in order. To He loved minutia. He loved red tape. So he just, and I can relate to all of that. So as soon as I saw his collection, I went, oh, I know exactly what's with this guy for sure. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was so much fun digging through it. It really was. It, was, it would be a nightmare, I think, for most other people. But for me, I really enjoyed it. What, what do you hope people get out of the book when they read it? Well, that's a good question. I think a couple of things. Um, you know, he was a pioneer. His forensics would not be the same without him, absolutely. And it, he and his contemporaries just saved lives. They, you know, put people in prison who should have been in prison. They um, made cops be more accountable, made them kind of take away from, you know, uh, the hunches and the third degree and the guesswork and using, you know, shoe prints as the main source of evidence. But, you know, Oscar pioneered some really bad science. Bloodstain pattern analysis is completely inaccurate. There are parts of it that are good, 
but it should never be used as primary evidence, absolutely. Um, fingerprinting is another one. We think that fingerprinting for decades was the gold standard. It's not. I mean, all you have to do is go to your DMV and try to do a thumbprint up to the state standard. It took me five times to get the right thumbprint for the state to accept my thumbprint. So how do we expect a thumbprint found in a crime scene by a suspect to be up to that same standard, you know? And I think it's just a reminder of how fallible we can be, particularly when we're looking at forensic science that is interpretive, the pattern matching, you know, like the, the bite mark analysis, the fingerprinting, the shoe prints. Um, those are things that if you aren't properly trained or if you're trained differently than another analyst, you might have two analysts come up with completely different conclusions. And then we're back to, okay, well, who's right? And how do we know they're right? So it's a cautionary tale. He was amazing. He was a great character. Thank goodness for him, for Oscar Heinrich, and, and the fact that he was there. And he was so passionate about solving crimes. But we need to take a step back and treat all areas of forensic science as we do like toxicology or DNA. They need to be peer tested, peer reviewed. They need to be constantly tested. They need to be, you know, studied and those studies printed in journals. And we just don't do that. You know, these are things that are developed within the law enforcement outside of the scientific community. We need more federal funding. So I, I hope that that's clear. And certainly the book does not bash your head for lack of a, of a less appropriate phrase for this book over with these subjects, you know, but it's important to know that, you know, just because we have come very far in forensics from Oscar Heinrich's time doesn't mean we don't have much more further to go. Right. Um, now, do you have a website or a place that people can come find your uh, blogs or information or anything like that? Sure. So uh, my website is my name, katewinklerdawson.com. And on there, you'll see a prompt for a newsletter. I have a podcast that's going to be coming out um, in the next six months or so. And it's, uh, the, the podcast is going to be documentary style, just like my books would be. So one case per season. And so if people are interested, they can you know, hop on my newsletter and follow it. Fantastic. Um, a great book. We'll have this linked on our website as well. Um, we're talking. We're talking about the book uh, American Sherlock, and it's murder forensics and the birth of American CSI. And the author has been our guest, Kate Winkler Dawson. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Great stuff, Kate. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll tell you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.